Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. The scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. Public opinion and rumors have a way of getting to even the strongest people. On January 18th, 1901, a man was hanged for a series of murders that, at their root, began because of harsh words and vicious taunts. So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Jimmy Governor, born in or around 1875, was born to a father who, according to history, was a full-blooded Aboriginal and a mother who was born of an Aboriginal mother and a white Irish father. After living most of his life in the Tallbragger region of New South Wales, Jimmy's parents packed up the family in 1888 and moved to Patterson, where his father Tommy gained the reputation of a good and loyal worker who was able to obtain work in a mostly white European area, setting a good example for his son who would follow in his footsteps. And for Jimmy, who had been teased pretty relentlessly while living in Tallbragger, the move to the Aborigines camp seemed to be a welcome change of pace for him and his brothers. Unfortunately, things with Tommy started to sour slightly shortly after the big move. In July of 1890, Tommy gave evidence in court as a witness and, a little later in the year, was charged for wounding a fellow Aboriginal with a penknife after an altercation about cooking meat over a fire. He got three months in jail and later had to move the family to the Golkong Wolar area in search of new work. At this point, old enough to no longer attend school, Jimmy started working in Wolar and in mid-1896 became a police tracker at Casillas and worked for about 18 months before suddenly leaving the area. The rumor for his sudden departure was that he got a white girl pregnant. About a year or so later, he married a 16-year-old girl named Ethel Page when she was about five months pregnant with their child. After their marriage, the birth of their son Sidney in 1899, and a few other jobs, Jimmy began work for a man named John Mobby. Now, working at the Mobby home started out as a great opportunity for Jimmy and his family. 
After getting Ethel a job working inside doing some housework, the family, in addition to Jimmy's brother Joe and a young boy named Peter Governor, were allowed to move to the Mobby property just about three miles from their home, living near the fellow workers, Jack Underwood and Jack Porter, and making their jobs both financially and personally lucrative. But after about four months of bliss, things between Jimmy Governor and his employer started to go sour. Jimmy at some point asked John Mobby for some more rations to take back to their camp, but John responded that he would not give them anything else until they finished the fencing that they were contracted to do. Still fuming with his refusal, Ethel came to her husband with some troubling news. According to Ethel, who by this point was pregnant with the couple's second child, Mrs. Mobby was taunting the young girl for her interracial relationship something the couple had been dealing with from the moment they started their relationship. Jimmy, furious, wanted to defend his wife and confront Mrs. Mobby. So on July 20th, 1900, Jimmy Governor, along with his friend Jack Underwood, went into the Mobby home where the women of the family were living and demanded Mrs. Mobby cease her comments about his wife. Even saying beforehand, I'll take her to court if she does not mind herself. Walking into the house, after asking if Mrs. Mobby was in, Jimmy asked, Did you tell my missus that any white woman who married a black fellow ought to be shot? Did you ask my wife about our private business? Did you ask her what sort of nature did I have, black or white? To which the women inside, Mrs. Mobby and a schoolteacher slash governess, Helen Josephine Kurz, turned around and began laughing at Jimmy Governor. As their sneers continued, Jimmy Governor, who spent his whole life trying to prove himself in a world where the white society seemed to reign supreme, lost his temper and hit Mrs. Sarah Mobby in the face, knocking her to the ground. He then lost what was left of his composure, blacked out, and began hammering down on her with a tomahawk. He then moved on to everyone else who was in the house, killing Helen Kurz and Sarah's children, 11-year-old Hilda, 14-year-old Percy, and 16-year-old Grace. The only survivor was 9-year-old Albert Mobby, who hid under his bed until Jimmy walked away from the new Mobby home and, with the coast clear, ran to the old home where his father was and raised the alarm. With the news of what would later be called the Breelong Massacre spreading, a manhunt for Jimmy, Joe, and Jack Underwood began as all three men moved eastward with about 100 constables and 12 trackers hot on their trail. On July 22nd, just two days after the massacre, a settler named Simpson spotted the fugitives and shot at the trio, and two days later, on the 24th, Jack Underwood, who lost sight in one of his eyes as a child and had lameness in his leg that made travel more difficult, was captured near Leadville and taken to prison meaning that it was now just the Governor brothers who were out on the loose. Jack was later taken to trial and executed on January 14, 1901. Styled as bushrangers and with a hefty reward for their capture, the Governor brothers spent the next three months on the run, burglarizing a number of places for money and supplies, assaulting anyone who tried to stop them, and killing four more people in the process. There was Alexander McKay, who was killed in Ulan on the 23rd of July, Elizabeth O'Brien and her 18-month-old son, who were killed on the 24th in Marawa, and Kieran Fitzpatrick, who was killed near Wallar on the 26th. 
And despite the fact that the manhunt was reportedly one of Australia's largest, with about 2,000 volunteers and police working from all across the country, the men used great skill and a complete lack of remorse to remain hidden amongst the bush. Their violent spree creating a blanket of terror that seemed to envelop the whole entire country. Living in complete paranoia and, in some cases, moving out of their homesteads whenever news of the governors got too close for comfort, women and children were confined in one area and protected while the men joined the pursuit. Businesses closed their doors, and life came to a complete standstill in the areas of Wallar, Denman, and Marawa. Jimmy, still furious and harboring feelings from his past and how poorly he was treated, targeted the area of the Goulburn River around Wallar, where he used to work and felt he was the most mistreated. After avoiding police and skilled trackers for quite some time, the men were proclaimed outlaws on October 23, 1900, and became the last persons to be so declared in New South Wales. This meant that anyone armed with a weapon in the area could legally shoot and kill the brothers on sight, which is exactly what happened on October 13, 1900, when Jimmy Governor was shot in the mouth and on the 27th, two days after Sarah Mobby finally succumbed to her injuries, he was captured and taken into police custody. Joe Governor was shot and killed on October 31, 1900. Jimmy Governor was taken to trial in November of 1900 for the murder of Helen Kurz. He was found guilty after two days and sentenced to hang. After an appeal was dismissed and a day spent reading the Bible, singing native songs, and blaming his wife for the whole ordeal, Jimmy Governor was sent to the gallows and took his last breath on January 18, 1901. The same year his second child, a daughter, took her first. Ethel Governor, now a widowed mother of two, remarried a man named Francis Joseph Brown with whom she would have nine more children. When her second marriage was written about in the press, which occurred the same year Jimmy was executed, the following was said. The second marriage is just as repulsive as the first, for the bridegroom is a half-caste, and in spite of all her faults, the woman is white. That the institution of marriage should be for such degrading and soul-destroying unions is disgraceful, further showing how the public saw interracial marriage in this time period. She passed away on December 31st, 1945. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on January 19th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.